Strokeside Designs is a New York-based fine jewelry company focused on water sports. This is the best jewelry I have found through many years of searching. I love my Dragon Boat Paddle Heart earrings and my pendant. The jewelers at Strokeside Designs have worked for famous jewelry houses such as Tiffany & Company and Cartier. All of the pieces are hand-finished from fine materials. Express your passion for kayaking, canoeing, and dragon boating. Visit PaddleJewelry.com and get free shipping with the code PINK. That is PaddleJewelry.com and enter the code PINK. Are you a dragon boat athlete? Have you ever thought about joining a team? Hornet Water Sports makes high-performance, lightweight, carbon fiber dragon boat paddles. You can choose from one of their many graphic designs. Don't settle for just a boring black paddle. I love their design so much that I have four different paddles. They also have all of the dragon boat accessories that you need, paddle bags, tip covers, tape, and more. Visit their website at hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK at checkout to receive 10% off of your order. That's hornetwatersports.com and enter the code PINK. Thanks for downloading. My guest on today's episode is Sasha Milicevic, who originally hails from Serbia, but is currently living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Sasha was diagnosed with stage zero breast cancer at the age of 43. She shares her journey, what she would do differently had she had all of the information at that time, and why she is so passionate about bridging the gap between early stage survivors and metastatic survivors. This is a great episode with amazing content. We did have some technical difficulties with the connection, but I hope you enjoy it. Take a listen in. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here today with Sasha. Uh, Sasha is a um, stage zero breast cancer survivor. She was diagnosed in September of 2013 at the age of 43. She originally hails from Serbia. Um, at the time of her diagnosis, she was living in Jacksonville, Florida, and currently she has made her way to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is my hometown. So Sasha, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I'm excited to have you with us here today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be talking to you. Of course. So let's talk a little bit about your diagnosis. So you were diagnosed at the age of 43. Were you currently receiving mammograms at that time? Yes, I was uh, already receiving mammograms. I was. Um, I had dense uh, breasts and I was uh, high risk. I had some cysts in the past. So I was receiving annual mammograms at the time. Um, so I went for my annual mammogram, and uh, they told me to uh, to wait a little. Uh, and then they told me to come back for additional mammograms right away. And I asked the technician, what's going on? And surprisingly, because you know how they usually don't tell you anything? She said, um, it appears that you have some calcifications. So they saw and the so calcifications on your saw, regular mammogram. Yes, okay. On my regular mammogram. So they did additional um, 
additional imaging right away. And so and while was that I was through waiting, the ultrasound? Uh, no, they did additional mammograms. Oh, right they did away. additional mammograms? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't even let me get dressed. <laughs> and so while I was waiting for those, um, I'm a nerd. So I immediately uh, pulled up my phone and I and I did the search, what are calcifications? And I thought there are macro and micro calcifications. And within 15 minutes, they called me back and um, they said, the radiologist wants to talk to you. And they said, well, you have some calcifications. And I said, well, which ones, macro or micro? <laughs> they looked at me because they usually don't get those questions, I guess. And they said, uh, micro. And I said, those are not good, correct? And they said, nope. We, the four of us looked at those and um, we all agreed that those appear to be the CIS, uh, ductal carcinoma in situ. Right. And that's that's fairly unusual because usually they will wait and do ultrasound and additional testing before before yeah. pulling up the cancer word on you. Right. And they told me that right away. Wow. So did you <laughs> so, eventually go in for an ultrasound or anything additional diagnostically? Um there was there was no ultrasound. Uh, they scheduled me for a biopsy the following day. Okay. Um so I had uh, um mammogram guided biopsy and uh, so I think I had my original mammogram on Tuesday and by Friday I had a confirmed diagnosis of that DCIS based on biopsy. Wow okay so at that point in time you know what what were they kind of recommending um, in terms of you know mm -hmm. where do you go from here what happens um you know what they think the course of treatment will be was there any discussion at that point yes immediately uh the original suggestion was uh let's do BRCA testing to see the final uh, suggestion uh but the original plan was to have a lumpectomy followed by uh six weeks of radiation okay uh, if there is no BRCA genes and then if there was BRCA gene, then they said we will discuss other options. Right. So I assume you go through the testing. So was that testing something that was covered by your insurance company? Yes. Okay, good. Yes, and then, there was a history of breast cancer in my family. And so the, the, and, and since I was under 45, there was, there was no fight for insurance to okay. cover it. And so uh, what was the outcome of the BRCA testing? Negative. Negative. So Negative what is for the, BRCA. Okay. So what is yeah. the, did they, at that time, did they do the full panel? I mean, I know that there are additional. No, at that time okay. they did only, only BRCA1 and 2 that came back as negative. Uh, then we did the MRI. The MRI discovered another lesion in my breast. They so discovered what in your breast? Another lesion. Oh, another, another lesion. that seemed like. Um, questionable, so I had another biopsy, this time MRI guided, um, and based on the result of that uh, biopsy, it was um, assumed that was just hyperplasia. Is, am I pronouncing that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so my doctor suggested that we, that we maintain the original plan of treatment, Okay, so, and that was, again, the lumpectomy. 
Yes. Okay. So I had. So let me go back just a. Uh-huh. Let me go back just a moment. Um, so in terms of, so you said that there is a family history of breast cancer. So tell me a yes. little bit about that family history. I had two aunts. Two of my mother's sisters had um, breast cancer. And do you know None how them, about how old they were when they were diagnosed? Um, one of them was in her early forties. The other one was uh, it was later in her seventies. Neither one of them died of breast cancer. Okay. Um, so we knew that there was something, but you know they were both in Serbia. Right. Uh, the one that had breast cancer in their forties. Uh, had radical mastectomy. There were no gene testing at that time. Sure. Uh, she died later um, in her, she died a couple of years ago, uh, had nothing to do with cancer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was just kind of curious, you know, because I hear oftentimes that, you know, somebody goes through testing and, um, you know, there's a, a family history of something and the results of the BRCA testing or, you know, whatever, whatever panel that they're looking at, you know, whatever gene mutation comes back negative. And so it still kind of leaves some questions, you know, in your mind of, okay, obviously there's, there are other gene mutations that exist out there that just haven't been found. I did, um, more, um, more inclusive, like, or more extensive uh, gene testing in okay. 2015 or 2016, uh, which came with one gene mutation. and But that's, they, to this day, that gene mutation uh, is of unknown importance. Okay. So there is something, but we still don't know what that one is doing. Right. Okay. Okay. So... At the recommendation of the doctor, you went through and you had a lumpectomy? I had lumpectomy in November of 2013. And a couple of days after lumpectomy, I got a call from my doctor saying that she removed about four centimeters uh, of the CIS um, and that she didn't get uh, clear margins. Okay. And that the other lesion, which they thought was hyperplasia, uh, was actually DCIS as well. Oh, okay. Ah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good news, right? Yeah. So it was multifocal. The other lesion was about one and a half centimeter. Uh, she got clear margin for that one. But for the other one, even though it was very big, it was very thin and narrow. It was all contained within my milka. Uh, and so it wasn't palpable, even when they knew where it was, they, they couldn't, um, it wasn't palpable. And she said that at that point, uh, because it was going all the way to my nipple, she said that in order to get clear margins, she would have to remove nipples and nipple, and it would have to be very extensive. And she recommends mastectomy. Okay. So then I'll So how did you, I mean, you know, because really it's it's almost pretty rare that at a stage zero that the recommendation is for that mastectomy, right? So, um, I mean, I know that probably in the conversation of, you know, if you have a BRCA2 mutation, this might change the way that this looks yeah. in terms of your treatment options. So were you 
did you have any kind of feelings around, you know, just having done a lepectomy and now, now here you are and they're recommending a mastectomy. Did you have any feelings around that? Well, my feelings were, you know, I reacted out of pure fear of ignorance and ignorance. Um, her recommendation until that point, um, all our conversations were that uh, there is no significant, statistically significant difference in terms of mortality rates, whether you do lumpectomy or single mastectomy or double mastectomy. So it would be my choice. And I wanted to go for the least invasive option. Sure. That's why I wanted to, you know, I thought I'll have one surgery and that will be, you know, two or three days, maybe a week out of work, and then six weeks of radiation, and then bam, bam, thank you, ma'am, I can go back to work. Yeah, and And done and done. And my life will continue, (laughs) and done and done, right? Yeah. And then when she said that that doesn't think that's a viable option, that I would have to have a mastectomy, I would still have to have radiation, and then 10 years of tamoxifen, um, I started thinking, well, you know, if this is so big, and then this hyperplasia turned out to be DCIS, who knows what is in the other breast? Sure. And because I, at that time, I didn't realize what metastatic breast cancer is. I thought that having double mastectomy would actually lower my chances of metastasis. And so... I responded out of pure fear and ignorance. And I said, you know what? If we have to do single mastectomy, let's just do double mastectomy so that I can be at peace. Right. Well, and I think, you know, you you bring up a good point that, you know, you really kind of acted out of fear and ignorance. And, you know, it's a lot of it is because we are thrown into this situation and it's very overwhelming and you know, the world is spinning around us and we're standing still and we can't figure out which direction to go. And, you know, we've got so much information that's coming at us at any given point in time and to be able to try to process through and really be able to do our own research is impossible. I mean, it genuinely is impossible. And so I hear a lot of women, you know, that that have come on to the the podcast that have said similar things, you know, that they reacted out of fear or ignorance or, you know, they didn't really have time to process. So I'm kind of curious, would you have done something different? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, number one, I mean, the thing is like, all of a sudden, the rug is pulled from underneath you, right? You yes. hear the words, you have cancer. And immediately, you hear, I'm going to die. Yeah, correct. absolutely. You don't know. No one is telling you what is the difference between early stage and metastatic breast cancer. No one is explaining that. No one is really educating you about the difference between the two. They're throwing statistics at you about five-year prognosis, 10-year prognosis. And it was only later, years later, that I learned the difference. And I learned um, how things are counted and, 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 you know, how lots of statistics is misrepresenting uh, our odds. And, uh, and, and at the same time, you have to make these decisions while you are trying to processing these things and while you are ter- absolutely terrified. And uh, so, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do the same thing because removing 
absolutely healthy breast makes no sense. It's like you broke a finger and you cut off both arms. <laughs> Fair point. <Right? laughs> absolutely. Well, and I, so, you know, I agree so with you. Having, yes. Oh, having, having double mastectomy uh, has reduced my chances of having local recurrence. Uh, it meant that I don't have to take tamoxifen, which in some ways is good. Uh, but it did nothing to reduce to reduce my chances of um, eventually having metastatic disease. And, and I and I want to I just kind of want to piggyback off of that real quick because I remember when I was making my decision and I do have the bracket mm -hmm. to mutation. And so mm -hmm. that did kind of guide me in a specific direction. But mm -hmm. I remember sitting there with my doctor and saying to her, you know, I want to do the bilateral mastectomy because I want to mm -hmm. do everything I can to save my life. And she mm -hmm. very honestly looked me in the eyes and said, I cannot promise you that this will save your life. And it was in that moment that, you know, again, exactly what you said, people aren't, doctors aren't necessarily educating us on, you know, what does early disease mean? What does stage three mean? What does stage four mean? Mm -hmm. You know, what does it mean when it's metastasized? What, what does that yeah. look like? You know, and so I remember because I was, I was uh, stage two A, and mm -hmm. I remember somebody saying or having a conversation with me about, oh, you know, that's great. That's a great stage. And then it was, you know, a month later that I see an article about a woman who was stage 2A that ended mm -hmm. up having metastatic breast cancer and passing away. Mm -hmm. So there's, yeah. you know, I, you make such a great point um, about that. So I just wanted to kind of revisit that um, for a moment. So. Did you And honestly your doctor your doctor was was honest and your Absolutely. doctor told the truth. The, those are the kind of doctors that I appreciate much more yes. than doctors who say, I will cure you or you are cured because those doctors are actually um spreading the ignorance. And so when women who later on develop metastatic disease and 30% of early stages eventually do develop metastatic disease, so when they develop metastatic disease, it's like they're hit with, with the fright train because, oh my God, we were cured. And they had no idea that such a thing can happen because the doctors told them they're cured. Right. Right. Well, and that's, yeah, I mean, I feel like we could really go down this big rabbit hole in terms of that, because, you know, it, that's exactly it, where we're told, okay, you know, we're, we're curing you. And not that I had that experience, but I've heard people say that, you know, I will cure you, I will fix this. And then, you know, there's also this whole thinking of, well, you're five years out, you're 10 years out, you're 15 years out it's not going to come back. But the number no. of women that I have met and have seen that, you know, 15 years later, it has come back and yeah. it's metastatic, you know? So it, yeah. there, there's this kind of false sense of hope that is provided um, that again, you know, I think you make a great point that we really do have to be giving better information and correct information. Yeah. Yes, and for hormone positive cancer, breast cancers. So for 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 those who are ER and PR positive, fifty percent uh, of them will develop meds in the first five years, and fifty percent of them will develop meds in the in more than five years. Right. 
And that's staggering. Of those who will develop meds, right? Not right. not everyone will develop meds, but absolutely those who develop meds. The first, the half will develop in the first. So there is no there is no magic timeline. This is just a statistical timeline that that is you know developed here. It, it's social construct. There is nothing magical about that number five years that we. Most of us, many of us, keep as some sort of a holy grail and that we celebrate. Right. And I think that that kind of thinking is really toxic because it creates this horrid division between early stagers and, and, and those who are living with metastatic disease. Absolutely. Because then those who are living with metastatic disease are silenced and they are seen as someone to be feared of and and terrified instead of realizing that we are all just a scan away and we should be working together. Absolutely. Yes. And so I, I want to talk about that real quick um, after I ask this question, um, yes. because I know that you're highly involved in terms of, um, you know, kind of bridging that gap, if you will, between early stage and metastatic. Um, but so in terms of the mastectomy, did you opt for um, reconstruction? Did you decide to go flat? What, what was your decision there? Oh, that's, <laughs> that's another decision that, that I regret now, looking back. Uh, so I had, I had mastectomy and then I was supposed to, ha- I had delayed reconstruction. I opted for delayed reconstruction. I was seen as a high risk. I had complications immediately after, after mastectomy, um, and then I had uh, the flap reconstruction, after which I also had tons of complications. So I ended up with a total of six surgeries. Wow. Um, after which I finally said no more. <laughs> yeah. I don't blame you. I mean, really, at some point, it's just, you know, yeah. quality of life. Um, yeah. So, and what were, uh, what were some of those complications, if you don't mind me asking? No, I don't mind you asking. I had, after mastectomy, um, I had immediate necrosis and I was not healing properly. So the parts of, uh, so they had to kind of redo mastectomy on my right side because the tissue was not healing together. So they had to roughen up that side so that it would heal together. And then it turned out that I had pseudomonas infection. You had what? Um, I'm sorry. Pseudomonas. Okay. It's a kind of bacterial infection. So I had to go to the wound vac and then we had to pack the wounds. Um, and that took three months to heal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right after my first deep, uh, deep flap surgery, um, I had internal bleeding. And um, so I had my surgery. That was like 12, 14 hours. I don't even know. I woke up from uh, surgery and um, a couple of hours later I started losing it and I started talking to Sir in Serbian and asking for epidural. Oh wow. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I don't know why. Uh, but I remember that um, that they told me that they're not gonna give me epidural. It turns out I had internal bleeding in my abdomen. Oh my and I had to get uh, and I eventually stopped breathing and um, and lost consciousness. Oh and, my gosh. Uh, yeah. They had to roll me back into uh, 
operating room and patched me up. And I got like tons of blood that night. Uh, and uh, they kept me on sedation during until the morning. Oh so my gosh. I was, I was yeah, That's terrifying. That I is... almost blew. I almost ruined my doctor's record of not losing patients, um, and that's something again that people don't really think about. Like they think that uh, having reconstruction is easy and simple thing. <laughs> slap, yeah. You know, just a boob job and tummy tuck. Exactly. Like, oh my gosh. No, yes. <laughs> I, I kind of checked out during that surgery. Yeah. I went to the other side and they brought me back. Right. Um, yeah. There are so, so many misconceptions around the reconstructive yeah. process. Um, um, and then three weeks after that, all of my wounds opened and it took seven months for them to heal. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was so fun. at what point did fun. you have radiation? I never had radiation. You, know, you didn't. There was nothing to radiate. You didn't do the radiation. Remote. Okay. Well, I wasn't sure no. if they, because um, I know that they probably went in and, and did some additional testing. I didn't know if at the point where they did the mastectomy, no. if they did get the clean margins. Yes, they did okay. get clean margins uh, okay. after the mastectomy. Got it. So, um, I mean, wow. Like that's just, I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a lot um, to have to deal with. And, and I feel like there are a lot of people out there that, you know, they're, they don't have that experience where it's one surgery and they're done. It's multiple yeah. surgeries because there are complications due to whatever reason. Um, and, you know, there are definite risks that are involved with any of these kinds of surgeries that people who are outside of the cancer world don't really realize. And yeah. we are oftentimes told, True. oh, well, you get a tummy tuck or you get a boob job or, you know, whatever it might be. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. But even even people in cancer land who have a smooth, sometimes people do have smooth sailing, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and anyone who is who has those surgeries ahead of them wants to believe that they will have smooth sailing. And so, people who have complications, people who have infections, are. I recently realized that. Perhaps the reason why experience of people living with metastatic breast cancer resonated with me was because in those early stage groups and reconstruction groups, people like me, people who have complications, were seen like something was wrong with us, like we did something wrong. In a similar way, patients with stage four are seen by many early stages right so people would ask well what did you do what, like <laughs> almost like you caused it somehow yeah I you did. know yeah uh, yeah like like That's... people who, who who had infections what did you do and and i would say what did i do what do you mean i rolled in mud yeah. no i followed my doctor's instructions i did everything my doctor told me and i had shit luck and i had infections right and in my body responded way, differently yeah my body responded differently and in the same way someone who develops stage four has done everything their doctors told them and their body still responded differently their, their treatments failed them well that's it and so i think you know, so very often people in in um, in reconstruction groups would uh, treat 
people who had infections in the same way that metastatic patients are sometimes treated in early stage groups, like you did something wrong. Right. And, and that's, that's, yeah, and, that's not okay. And that's why I think, and that's why I think their experience resonated with me. Right. So, yeah, it does. It absolutely does. And so, you know, that really is kind of, I'm assuming, what led you to kind of being more involved in the metastatic breast cancer world. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, you know, I had a year and a half when I was attacking wounds and, yeah. <laughs> and learning about infections. And then I started reading all kinds of blogs about breast cancer. And in part, I was searching to like figuring out what's happening with my body. But then as I was reading different blogs, I started reading uh, Beth Caldwell's words and, and I ran into Kelly Davis and I, and I ran into a couple of other activists writing about metastatic breast cancer. And I realized, number one, that, you know, my odds of, of developing metastatic breast cancer are pretty high, that 30% of early stages will end up in that group, uh, then I learned that only 5% of funding uh, that is breast cancer related goes to metastatic breast cancer. And I just felt that is that is utterly irresponsible, that, that it is unfair. Yes. Um, and then, and, and I just, it was just mind-blowing to me. Right. <laughs> and, and then I read... Um, I read a blog by a blog post by Beth Calville about how how we need to work together and what is the role of allies and why early stages and and metastatic breast cancer patients need to work together and and to me that was something I could wrap my head around and it was kind of like a call to action yeah and that's how I got involved and now. You are part of the group that is bringing the Pittsburgh Metzgerade to life, which is an event that will support Metaviver. Yes. Um, so that well, first off, the, that that Calvo and I started a Facebook group called NBC Advocacy and Support. Sorry, it, I called, couldn't hear that. Can you say that again? Uh, it's a Facebook support group, which is called NBC Advocacy and Support, okay. and which is one of the very few Facebook groups that has that is open both to early stagers and metastatic breast breast cancer patients, okay. and which now has almost two thousand members. Very nice. So that's that's a big thing. Yeah. And then second thing is that I'm part of the group called Pittsburgh Metzgerade, um, that is a fundraiser for Metaviver that will be taking place in Pittsburgh on April 18, 2020, in the Circuit Center Ballroom. And we actually had to pause selling tickets a couple <laughs> of days ago. <laughs> Two months ahead because we are sold out. <laughs> yeah. And that's so not a bad thing. <laughs> no, that's not a bad thing at all. We are absolutely thrilled. Uh, we are just negotiating with the event, uh, the, with the venue, so that we can get a few more tables to make sure that we accommodate families of our members and, and people that we have lost because since uh, we are very small group. Pittsburgh sure. is not, a, as you know, Pittsburgh yes. is not a big, big place. 
Uh, the group is started this with maybe 10 or 15 people. Um, and the group is about 50%. Um, when we started, was about 50% metastatic patients and 50% early stagers and cancer muggles, as I say, people who are not from cancer land. Yeah. And since we started, uh, we lost four members. Wow. Um, just, yeah. So we are dedicating Pittsburgh Masquerade to memory of the four members that we, we lost. Um, Laura Williams, the mother, Roberta Sparsa, Bindi Kunz, and Laurie Cabershaw. So our whole event is dedicated to their mm. And we want to be something tons of money that we can donate to MetaViber because MetaViber uh, uses all of their funds to sponsor and uh, research for treatment of MBC. Right. Yeah. And they uh, were actually on the podcast on February 4th, which was World Cancer Day. So, yeah, we uh, we definitely know all about Metavivers. So that's pretty exciting yeah. to bring that fundraising event to Pittsburgh. Um, I think that's really exciting. And personally, I hope that we can bring it here to Phoenix. <laughs> but nice. we'll kind of see yes. who we can, you know, pull in to do that. So... Um, well, we are absolutely thrilled with the support that we got from the local community. And even though we're not selling tickets, we, we're still happy to accept sponsorship. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so if there yeah. are any sponsors, people who want to donate and sponsors MetaViber, we are happy to take those. Uh, but we are so appreciative and thankful for the support of our community that that, yes, that's beyond words. That's Pittsburgh. That. That's Pittsburgh. <laughs> I will say Pittsburgh that is strong. absolutely yes. Pittsburgh. Yes, Pittsburgh does pull through as a very supportive community. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. So, um, our unfortunately our time has ended uh, for for the podcast, but. I want to thank you so much, uh, one, for coming on and sharing your time with me, um, two, for all of the work that you're doing to really kind of bridge the gap between early stage and uh, stage four breast cancer. I think that's really important work to be done, and I'm, I'm glad that, you know, we have a voice in you to be able to do that. So hopefully other people will start jumping on board and supporting that same mission of bridging that gap between the early stage and the, the metastatic breast cancers. So again, thank you so much and for coming I wanna, on. And I want to thank you for having me and thank you for kind of spreading that, that pink ribbon fog that is clouding um, the cases, which is behind the back breast cancer, which we need to Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast? Our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at BehindThePinkRibbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.